In today's episode of Discovering Wholeness, we'll discuss how trauma shows up in the body. Those negative experiences we have in life don't just live in our conscious memories. They get stored in the physical body. And so beginning to understand the relationship between trauma and body is an important step in healing. So we want to take a look at that together. Season one of Discovering Wholeness is sponsored by the Hayden Institute. Integrate spirituality with Jungian teachings in the Hayden Institute's two-year certification course in spiritual direction training. Participants develop understanding of the art and practice of spiritual direction. They learn mystical and contemplative practices of Christianity and other ancient spiritual traditions. Join faculty and mentors at the Hayden Institute in using tools like Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, and DreamWork to engage in self-discovery, transformation, and the experience of spiritual companionship. Learn more at haydeninstitute.com. Welcome to Discovering Wholeness, a podcast for any human practicing being for healing trauma and unearthing self. I'm Kendra Frazier. I'm Jillian Drader. And I'm Kendall Rothis. We are your hosts, and we invite you to join us as we peel back the layers of trauma and discover our innate wholeness. Trauma has been a significant part of many of our journeys, whether those traumas are with a big T or with a little T. We gather each week to discuss trauma, spirituality, and staying grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. We are so glad you've joined us. You can participate in the larger conversation with us on Instagram and Facebook at Discovering Wholeness Podcast. We're so excited to talk with you because trauma is such an important topic. We recognize that trauma is also a very sensitive topic. And so we invite you into our centering moments and ask that you join us in our grounding exercise at the beginning, middle and ending of each episode, if that feels right for you. Today, I'd like to invite you into something called a butterfly hug. And if it feels okay for you, I want to invite you to cross your arms over your chest and just have the tips of your middle fingers from each hand just around your collarbone. And if it feels okay, you can lock your thumbs together. And just as you feel that connection to your body, just begin gently to alternate tapping with your hands on your shoulders, left to right, left to right, just gently feeling the presence of your own hands, just gently connecting with your upper body. And also if it feels right for you, you can notice your breath as you tap. Just taking in a gentle breath, moving out through your mouth or just focus on your hands tapping if that feels better for you noticing your feet on the floor noticing how it feels for your body to be held in the chair that you're in just connecting to your physical being and this alternating tapping is something that you can do any time that you might feel a little stressed or maybe a little trigger, just to bring your body back into balance, to feel that sense of relaxation and calm. So as you notice this tapping, just invite you to just slowly come back to center to your body, take in another deep breath, come back to the room around you, notice what's around you, and join us in our conversation for today. 
I'm Kendall Rothis, and I will be facilitating today's conversation along with my amazing co-hosts, Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader. As we mentioned, today's episode is about trauma and the body. I remember when I first started noticing the way trauma lived in my own body. It was after my divorce and this thing started happening to me that whenever I heard a pickup truck driving down the street outside my house, my entire body would clench up and my heart would start to race. And I would feel kind of like panicky and out of breath. And it would take me several minutes after the truck had passed for my body to calm back down. And it was all because my ex-husband had driven a pickup truck. And even though we were living in different states at that point, and it was very unlikely that he was driving down the road outside my house, the sound of a truck still made my body flinch and respond in fear as if he were about to, to walk in the door. So that's one example from my own life. Um, but Jillian, based on your vast experience working with trauma survivors, I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the many ways you've seen trauma show up in the body. Thanks, Kendall. Yeah, and I, I really hear what you're saying about, I think there's something about the subtleties that we won't necessarily catch. So your example is so is so perfect for the things in our everyday lives that we might not understand why we're having a reaction to. But you're right, it's very much often in our bodies, and it can be sort of short term, and maybe even long term in terms of physical illness. So um, we're going to talk, I know a little bit more about some specific examples, but I've seen um, a propensity for things like chronic fatigue syndrome, or fibromyalgia, um, especially in women who have had long standing um, trauma, maybe early trauma, and then ongoing trauma. Um, so lots of joint pain, lots of physical um, unwellness, uh, headaches is another way that trauma will show up in the body, sleep disturbances. Um, I think one of the biggest ones, depending on, you know, which end of the spectrum, and by that, I mean, sometimes we're hyper aroused, and, and our bodies are on high alert, but sometimes we're really like kind of shut down. So when we're really overactivated, where we've got a really high startle response, um, you know, not sleeping well, every little noise kind of makes us jump. And we also can be very lethargic on the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, sleeping all the time or just really not motivated can look a lot like depression and sometimes can um, develop into clinical depression. So there's every end of the spectrum, but certainly I think the thing that I like to emphasize to people that often gets missed is that idea of actual physical illness, um, stomach problems, heart problems, even um, joint pain, just general unease in the body. Um, we might tend to run to medical answers for like, there's something wrong with me and then wonder why nothing's getting resolved. But often it's because the body is holding so much um, trauma and it's manifesting physically. Yeah. And have you seen that with people you've worked with that as they begin to work with some of their trauma, their mm -hmm. physical symptoms have been relieved? Yeah, I had, um, I mean, this is a very kind of exceptional, I think, experience, but I don't think it's impossible or unusual. Um, I was part of a research study quite a while ago now, uh, looking at uh, symptoms of trauma with women who had a PTSD diagnosis as a result of uh, sexual assault. And one of the women I was working with had terrible physical pain, fibromyalgia. And we were working um, with a particular therapy very similar to EMDR called observed experiential integration. And we were focused on the pain in her left shoulder. And as we were doing the, the therapy, um, focusing on the pain in her shoulder, what she became aware of is that that was the shoulder that had been worked on by her chi uh, chiropractor, who actually was the person who had assaulted her in a session. And when that connection happened and her body and brain were able to make that link, the pain in her shoulder dissipated. Um, now, that was one piece of a very big, long, complicated uh, fibromyalgia case. And I'm certainly not going to claim that, you know, one session of, of a certain kind of therapy is going to resolve that. But I think what it points to is the, the very close connection to physical 
unwellness and trauma, unresolved trauma, Mm -hmm. and the way that it can be stored in the body. Yeah. Thank you. Um, It's pretty remarkable, the connection between our bodies and the experiences that we've had. Um, And one of the things that comes up around this conversation a lot is um, the idea of triggers, you know, something like I was talking about the sound of the truck, you know, kind of causing my body to react. And Kendra, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about triggers, like what are they? How do they show up? And also, I mean, I just think trigger is kind of a buzzword these days. And so as we're kind of talking about this, I'm wondering if you can define the word trigger as we're using it in this context. When I think about triggers, triggers are often associated, you hear it associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Um, and sometimes people feel like you have to be actually diagnosed with something in order to be traumatized. But trauma is really a stimulus that brings up a feeling of trauma. Um, and that can look like a myriad of things. It could be a sound. It could be um, a smell. It could be something that you see. Um, for me, it was, it has been, there was a particular smell that um, someone who molested me had. So anytime I would, my body would have a trauma response, I would t- typically have that smell come about. And so that would let me know that I was being triggered in some type of way. Um, for some people, it could be a landscape um, that you may see um, where the assault may have happened. Um, or the violence may have happened for others. It could be a particular season. Um, Maybe your trauma happened in the summertime, winter, spring, so on and so forth. Um, For other people, it could be um, a particular date. It could be the date of um, someone who transitioned or the date of an anniversary. Um, And so it just all depends and it's relative to the person, but it can look like a myriad of things. That's why I'm so glad that you brought in the example of the doorknob, Jillian. Yeah, Jillian, you had this interesting story about a client who was triggered in your office. Can you share that with our listeners? Yes, for sure. You know, and as I I think about this client and the, the client I mentioned earlier, it just reminds me of what incredible teachers the clients that I've had the privilege of working with have been for me that so much of what I've learned. Yes, there's courses and books and all kinds of things, but the lived experience of the brave and courageous people who have come to do the work, which is hard, have been such great teachers. And I, I think I just want to take a minute to honor that, that this is not an easy journey and, and it takes a lot of courage to do this work. Um, so yeah, I, I see that and I want to acknowledge that, but yes, I had a, one again, wonderful, beautiful human person who uh, worked with me for quite a long time. And we were in an old building and we were sort of feeling a little stumped about why it was that every time we did the particular therapy, again, um, similar to EMDR uh, in that particular space, there was a certain direction that her eyes would fall where she would get really activated and it didn't seem to be relevant or related to the particular memory that we might've been working on. And it took us a while, but again, like the example I gave earlier, we finally, one day it dawned on her, it kind of clicked that there were, because it was an old building, the doors in the room had very old fashioned glass doorknobs and they were the same doorknobs or very similar as the knobs on the doors in the room that she had been abused in as a child. And again, as she became aware of that, you know, first of all, it was a big relief to make that connection because there's also that moment of like, what is wrong? Why is this not clearing? What's the matter with me? All of that kind of self-deprecating that can so often happen with trauma survivors. Um, But it, it just speaks to the fact that we just don't know. And we also can't control for, what might show up for somebody. So there's no way to manage all this. Um, But it was certainly helpful to understand that. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Jillian. I mean, what stands out in that story for me is the way a trigger could be something that's totally innocuous to somebody else. You know, it's, it's just relevant to that person's particular story. And so that means, I think, as you were saying, Jillian, our job as caretakers is not to avoid ever exposing someone to a trigger because that would be impossible. Um, yeah. 
we can't read minds. Um, and it's certainly good to be aware of potential triggers and give people a heads up when possible. But we just can't anticipate or avoid any and all activation. So it seems to me that our job is to respond compassionately when triggers happen, um, which I want to get to in a, in a moment. But first, I'm also thinking about how not every trigger is even connected to an explicit memory. You know, like I could tie the truck thing to my husband's truck and your client eventually was able to, to tie the doorknob to the doorknob from her childhood. Um, but there's also such a thing as implicit memory, right? Your body remembers even when your conscious mind doesn't. Um, and that seems like an important thing to me here. So I'm just wondering, can the two of you talk about that for a moment? about the types of implicit memory? Well, I can, I can jump in. I, I think the one um, that comes to my mind that I see so often is pre-verbal trauma. So events that happened even in the womb, um, before we were even born, you know, we're being exposed to sounds and, and hormones and, bio and chemicals in the body that are creating anxiety and stress. We can be born with PTSD, born with a trauma um, kind of signature. And I just want to sidestep for a second because it really stood, I wanted to emphasize this when, Kendra, you mentioned earlier about this diagnosis of PTSD. And one of the things that I've also seen that's been concerning to me that can also be invalidating for people is the, the official diagnosis within the context of a DSM for people who are familiar with the DSM, which is the diagnostic and statistical manual that's used within psychiatric communities or psychological communities is very rigid in its, in its criteria. And it's become more so, and there's a lot behind all that. We could have a whole episode just on that issue. But I think what I want to say is that just because you may be told at, by a professional in some capacity that you don't meet the criteria for PTSD and therefore your trauma somehow gets dismissed, not to accept that, um, that it's really important to own that your experience and your truth and, and what you know and are coming to understand about trauma is absolutely valid, whether it meets that official diagnosis or not. A lot of people get lost in the system because of that confusion and that dismissal because of a diagnostic tool. Um, so I just, I just wanted to say that because when you, when you brought that up, Andrew, it just reminded me of all the people I've talked to over the years who've been dismissed in their trauma because they didn't meet the criteria. Um, and it does segue a little bit into what I'm talking about in, in that if a person can't identify, like you're saying, Kendall, that it was a particular sound or you can hear a truck, but it was something that occurred before language was formed. So before the person had words, um, that it definitely still holds true that it's being stored. Those memories are there. So I sometimes, oftentimes will hear adults expressing like, I don't understand why this particular situation or this particular sound or smell or all of those things that, that have been mentioned really are disturbing for me or really kind of seem to send me off. I don't, I don't understand that. And when we can talk about the ways in which uh, implicit memory works and that pre-verbal experiences are stored just as strongly, perhaps even more so because they're right in our five senses, um, they can have an, a definite impact and an, an ongoing impact without us actually having words to explain it. And that can add to that sense of there's something wrong with me. Like, you know, I can't figure this out. Um, but it's important to recognize that even though we don't have words, you know, we often hear people say, oh, they were too young. They don't remember. You know, they, they were just little. It's like, no, it all went in and it's, it's having an impact. Um, and it, again, can even tie into physical wellness. Children with, un, you know, health diagnoses that they can't quite figure out what's going on. And a lot of times that can also be things that are stored from early on. Um, and there's lots more I could say there, but Kendra, what would you like to add there? I'd love to hear from you. 
you've hit some really valid points. I think when it comes to implicit memory, just recognizing that there will be certain activities and experiences that we have that impact the way that we behave. And like Kendall said, a lot of that can be unconscious and could randomly come up, whether that's in session or outside of session, depending on what type of intentional work you're doing on your healing. I'm also thinking about um, how sometimes implicit memory is also referred to as non-declarative memory. Um, and when it comes to thinking about the ways that implicit memory can show up, I'm thinking about generational trauma when it comes to um, ancestral things that show up, particularly for um, people of color, um, African-Americans specifically, when it comes to being exposed to chronic poverty or, um, or incest that's generational, um, sexual abuse that's generational, or how it can show up just in the way you see generations of children engage one another. Um, so that is what I'm thinking about in this moment, how some of the things that I've experienced personally, um, as it comes to implicit memory, sometimes don't feel like my own experiences. But when I have an opportunity to sit and have conversations with my mother or great aunts or my father, I get a better understanding of why certain things are coming up for me in terms of things that I have to go and look at and heal within myself that may not necessarily belong to me, but may have belonged to my grandmother or, or my four parents prior to her. So I do want to add that to the conversation because I think that that is important. Absolutely. Very important. I think um, both of you bringing up um, these different ways that um, trauma has has gotten stored in our bodies, maybe without even our conscious awareness is so important because, um, yeah, it's very easy to invalidate um, the ways that our bodies are getting triggered if we can't remember <laughs> or connect back to the experience, the first experience that kind of wounded us. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the trauma isn't real. Um, and it, it kind of makes me think of, um, like, it's, it's sort of the symptom that validates the trauma, not necessarily the ability to remember what happened. Um, which I think for me has been so key in developing self-compassion for myself because instead of, you know, thinking I have to understand every little piece of what's happening in order for it to be legitimate, just extending grace and compassion for what I'm feeling, knowing that it's connected to something, whether or not I can identify, you know, whether or not I can identify it right away. Self-compassion is so important. One of the things that I'm thinking about too, Kendall, is um, I'm glad that you brought up pre-verbal trauma. I'm also thinking about people that experience trauma in utero before they are even born yeah. um, and the mm -hmm. level of impact mm -hmm. that their mm -hmm. um, the pregnancy has on a child in terms of what the mother may, may be experiencing. I recently um, was doing some ritual work with my sister and a friend of ours and the friend um, in the ritual was able to access the joy that had been covered up because of all the trauma that she experienced while she was in utero was a really powerful experience um, for her. But I also think that that is something for people to be mindful of who had challenging um, birthing experiences. Yeah, I think about that actually all the time because my both of both of my daughters are adopted and um, you know, they were, they were exposed to drugs in the womb. I don't know how that affected them. Um, one of my daughters, when she was born, um, she was left, um, in the NICU for six weeks before I ever met her. So she spent six weeks, the first six weeks of her life without any family, no one picking her up, no one holding her outside, you know, outside of nurses, um, and all of that's obviously that's pre-verbal. And so I just want to be so conscious of the ways that that those things could end up affecting her, um, even though she she didn't have language at the time to to express what was happening or understand it. So I'm glad you you brought that up. Just as I'm hearing that um, really important awareness of that in utero, I think there's also the, that side of when you talked about self-compassion for for the the women who were birthing those children and going through their own, you know, just to not get kind of overwhelmed with 
guilt or shame yes, or yes, you know, yes. everybody's story is unique and um I just wanted to kind of point that out because I, I see that a lot when we get into conversations mm-hmm. around in utero trauma and pre-verbal trauma and just the ways that that can bring up a lot of guilt and shame for women who have were having a hard time and had their own probably trauma at the time as well. Um, so just wanted to put that in there, not to get kind of shut down with what might come up when you hear this information. Right. Um, we did the best you could and there is healing mm-hmm. available. As we transition from the conversation to another brief breather, I invite you to again, notice your feet on the floor, your body in the chair or wherever you find yourself sitting. And if it feels right for you, just invite you to take in a breath. And as you breathe in, just count to four. Hold that breath for a count of four. Breathe out for four. Hold that breath for four. Again, whatever feels best for you. You can have your eyes open, your eyes closed. Just again, breathing in. One, two, three, four. Holding for four. One, two, three, four. Breathing out for four. One, two, three, four. And holding that breath again for four. One, two, three, four. And again, noticing your feet on the floor, your body in your chair, and joining us again as we continue our conversation. I'm Jillian Drader. I'm passionate about my work as a trauma therapist, clinical supervisor, and spiritual director. I love meeting with clients and working together with them through their trauma and reimagining what life and spirituality might look like on the other side of healing. As a certified Daring Way facilitator and educator, I also love the opportunity to empower people in their journeys toward authentic living and personal growth. If you're interested in what I do, please check out my website at draderandassociates.com. That's drader, D-R-A-D-E-R, and associates.com. Welcome back to Discovering Wholeness. I'm Kendall Rothis, today's episode facilitator, and I'm joined by Jillian Drader and Kendra Frazier. When someone encounters a, a trigger, you know, when the traumatic memory stored in your body gets activated, um, what might that look like? Um, what, what kind of could happen on the outside when, when something gets triggered? Kendra, could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. The story that comes to mind is working with this third grader at an elementary school um, that I was supporting as an outside um, clinical social worker, working with the teachers as well as the administration to support these students. Um, This particular third grader was not um, my client, my direct client, or working with anyone, but I remember them calling me Um, to go and see about him because he had started banging his head up against the wall Um, and nobody could get him to stop or else he would become really explosive. And so I remember just sitting down beside behind him um, and kind of supporting him and, and grounding himself by asking him some questions about what he saw, what he heard. Um, And then I began to ask him, um, I said, I asked him a question around like, 
did something happen on this particular day? Um, and he started telling me about how his dad left and how his dad left him on this particular day, maybe, maybe like two or three years prior. And he was uh, having a hard time adjusting as well as his grandmother had just went into the hospital who was somebody that was taking care of him. Um, and so his trauma response showed up behaviorally. Um, he, he was being defiant only because of the loss and the absence that he absence that he was experiencing. And so after we were able to get to some of those answers, I walked him through just de-escalating him through the breath, through him accessing his breath. And he began to eventually let go of the wall. Um, so often when I see teachers who are having challenging times with students within classroom settings prior to the pandemic, of course, there is always a knee-jerk reaction to respond how the child is responding. And so that may look like screaming or that may, may look like being overly harsh because of their behavior. But I think that it's really important for people to recognize that you have no idea what that child or what that person might have, might have experienced before they went through the doors of the, of the classroom or of the school. So what it means to really um, get, I, I call it getting small, so they feel safe enough to show up as their as 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 their authentic selves um, to create safe space, as opposed to um, being loud and and being overly attacking on what you're seeing. Um, so that's that's the story that comes to mind when I think of um, how triggers can show up for mm -hmm. for young people, particularly. Yeah, yeah, and Jill Jillian, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about what you were mentioning earlier in the episode about um, like hypo arousal versus hyper arousal and how those look different. Often when we think about a trauma response or a trigger, um, we think about like that hyper reaction where, you know, we're getting really agitated. Um, a person might start to get speak a lot faster. Um, their physical body might get really tense. They're maybe having a hard time breathing, or sometimes they'll even talk about, you know, my throat's closing, or I'm getting really hot or really agitated. Um, that that's more the hyper arousal, like that high, high activated nervous system feeling really edgy. But the other side of that can also be a hypo arousal where we really are more shut down. And so that's more lethargic, really um, kind of not able to think too clearly, which happens in both sides. And that there's a lot of brain stuff we could talk about there around how the front part of the brain kind of shuts down when we get triggered and we're in our survival brain. But with a hypo arousal, it's definitely more um, flat affect, you know, maybe more can't stay awake almost like wanting to go to sleep the system just wants to collapse and shut down um, breathing might be really kind of slower um, shallow blood pressure kind of drops um, and so it's a very extreme difference um, some of the emotions that show up when we're in those different states hyperarousal is going to be more grief and sadness or maybe shame and when we're into hyperarousal it tends to be more fear or anger or you know even rage depending on how activated a person is but i think we think more of the hyper arouse like that really kind of high energy lots going on and that we're trying to kind of settle a person in that state but we might miss the hypo um, in ourselves or in people that we're with thinking that they're just really kind of chill or they're really mellow or <laughs> but actually they may be really not present in the same way as somebody who's really activated yeah. Yeah. And will you say a little bit more about the whole, the front, how the front part of the brain kind of, I don't know if goes offline is the right way to describe that, but yeah. It, yeah. It, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Because basically when we get triggered, um, what we're starting to really understand from brain science, which has been, I think, such an amazing breakthrough in understanding trauma 
is that when we're activated, our, we literally go into our survival brain, which is in the back part of the brain. And it's all of the memories, all of the sensations, all the things we've been talking about through our five senses. That's how trauma gets stored and it gets burned into the back part of the survival brain. But it also means that the front part is offline, that part where we're holding our current life or our skills. Like maybe I hear this a lot, you know, I've done this group or I've learned these skills, but when, when it happens, I just can't seem to remember. And we've, there's been a lot of research done. um, One study in particular that was to do with PTSD in war vets, where they actually did those colored pictures of the brain, you know, kind of this is your brain on whatever. And um, in the research exposed the individuals that were participating to images that they knew would be triggering related to to war. And when they mapped the brains, literally the light between the front and the back of the brain, the light went out. So there was no access to that front part of the brain. So often that's when people will feel really helpless in a different kind of way. It's like, I can't think. And I know I know how to do this different. And I've got these breathing exercises and I've got, but I just in those moments can't remember. But you literally can't because your brain is literally offline. Your prefrontal cortex is not online at that moment. And so finding ways, and that's you know something that we could talk about, probably a whole nother episode of how do we get our brains back online in those moments and um, and stay present and, and mm. feel resourceful. I think that's just so helpful to understand that we are literally losing access <laughs> to that part of our brain mm-hmm. that can you can think logically and um, just a, as another way of offering compassion to ourselves and not just to ourselves, but the yeah. people we're working with, yeah. I mean, especially children mm-hmm. when they're, you know, um, triggered. Mm-hmm. I think that's so helpful. And being in that back part, that is what would activate mm-hmm. the sort of fight, flight, freeze response. Correct? And you're the yeah. one, Julian, yeah. you're the one that yeah. introduced me to the, this fourth idea of, fight, mm-hmm. flight, freeze, or fawn. Can you, so can you say just a sec, um, yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Too? You know, a lot of us have heard fight, flight, freeze. So when we're in a situation um, and it can also be a trigger, it doesn't necessarily have to be an event that's happening in the moment, but when we're even triggered, we may end up um, actually responding in the same way. But with fighting, we're, we're confronting, we're like, we're reacting, we're fighting, we're, you know, our bodies are moving. Um, flight, we're running away, like we're leaving. Um, and it might even again, be from a trigger, something's happened, we're, we're out. Freeze, we can't move. Um, we can't resist, we can't act out. And I want to highlight something here that often doesn't get talked about. And that's a verbal freeze. So we're kind of back to the brain that one of the other things that happens in a post-traumatic state when we're kind of reacting um, or experiencing something is that the blood flow from the part of the brain called the Broca's area, which is produces speech, um, it it's repressed. It's um, the blood flow slows down. So it's, we could call that almost speechless terror. And I've often heard from victims of violence where they've been hard on themselves for the two reasons, why didn't I run? And why didn't I yell or scream or do something? It's well, in that free state, your body is not moving. And you also verbally probably couldn't speak. Um, And so, you know, again, compassion, compassion, compassion. (laughs) Um, But the fourth, um, the fourth area of fawning uh, is also something that, you know, people can sometimes be really hard on themselves about and fawning is really a way to hide from danger it might even mean complying with an attacker to save yourself like kind of going along with whatever's happening because it feels like the safest thing to do Um, but again that's a space where people can often then blame themselves like well I didn't you know didn't do this didn't do that why not I'm I must have you know whatever fill in the blank Um, But it's such, uh, I think we're hearing week after week in our series, there's so much physiology and neurology involved in all of this that is beyond our conscious control. And the more we can really take that in, I think the more we can have compassion for ourselves and move towards healing instead of being stuck in self-blame. Yes. You talking about that, Jillian, was, I mean, it was just speaking to me and the ways that you know, I know I have 
blamed myself for things or thought like, why didn't I respond better? Mm-hmm. And understanding that, that I didn't, I didn't have access yeah. <laughs> to yeah. speak. I didn't have access to um, the parts of myself that could, could uh, maybe defend myself that, that it just, uh-huh. oh, like, it just feels like a big, you know, burden coming off or a a sigh of relief to know like, Mm -hmm. okay, that was my body doing the best it knew how to keep me safe. Mm -hmm. Um, and to not beat myself up about those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. And, and I'm wondering, you know, now that we've talked about triggers and as we become aware of, oh my goodness, I'm being triggered in this moment, like, what can we do about it? <laughs> you know, um, is, is there a way to, to help our, our brains come back online? And, and I know we don't have time to go into all of that right now, but I'm just wondering if we could mention a few practical tips, maybe starting with ourselves first. Like, what do you do for yourself when you get activated? Maybe there are some practices you use. Um, Kendra, what would you, what would you say? I think for me personally, grounding becomes very important. Grounding mm-hmm. nature particularly. Um, mm-hmm. We sometimes have to be reminded through nature, which has its own divine intelligence, how to take a pause. So sometimes just standing on grass and grounding that way is helpful for me. Um, a lot of sometimes... Um, I've only had two panic attacks in my life, but they came at times when I was very stressed, but did not recognize it and couldn't seem to catch my breath. I think there's a tendency for us to crouch over when we have those moments, um, uh, those panic attack moments, but it is really a matter of straightening up and allowing your chest to open and trying to take slow, deep breaths. Those are all helpful for me when I'm in a moment where um, things are challenging. So those are the two that come to mind personally. Mm. Thank you. Anything you would add to that, Jillian, about what you... I think for me, one of the things that has been helpful when I've been aware that I've been triggered is definitely moving my body and getting outside. I'd agree with what Kendra said. And scents have been really helpful for me. Like I'll have some aromatherapy oils that for me are particularly grounding, maybe a citrus or some peppermint or something that kind of brings me back into my body. And I'm a bit of a brain nerd. It's also the sense that's the closest to the part of the brain that needs to come back online, our olfactory. So (laughs) you know, my brainy nerdy side. Um, But I get excited about it because it feels like it's doable. Um, And yeah, certainly for me, just uh, moving and feeling my body, feet Mm. on the floor, getting outside, but scents have been really, really helpful for me as well. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you, Kendra, for sharing from your own experience. Um, And I'm wondering, too, when you're working with someone who's been triggered, like what are some ways to potentially help them? You know, I'm talking about in the moment when they're actively either panicking or dissociating or whatever. Are there some things you can do as a as a caregiver, as a spiritual director or, or therapist in the moment? I think for me, um, when it particularly if if I am on the phone with someone that has called me in the in a state of um, heightened emotionality, um, again grounding, getting them back to where they are in the present moment, like it it is as basic as so. What do you see right now around you? What are you sitting on? what do your clothes feel like against your skin? Like, because really the trigger takes us outside of our bodies and outside of the present moment. So for the people that I work with, it's about getting them back into the present moment and in their bodies, um, recognizing that they are in a safe place. Because typically when we are triggered, we don't feel safe. That's so good. Yeah, because when you're triggered, it's like you're, it's almost like you're reliving that past mm-hmm. experience versus being able to be in the present moment where you are absolutely safe. And so I, you, those, using those five senses kind of brings you back to the, to the present and can, can help snap you out of the past. Absolutely. Which I think speaks to the brilliance and magic of the brain, right, Jillian? That our brain 
takes us back to the to to the moment that we were living the trauma. And so we have to remember that we are the bosses of our brains and we can tell our brains what to do. I think one of the other things I would add that I've done at times um, that's been very helpful in a in a session with somebody, if that is happening, is, is to kind of ask them in that moment if they're able to articulate. Sometimes it has to be a little bit more directed. Like I will literally invite them, like, you know, can we just stand up? Can we, because sometimes if they're that offline, but other times it's been an invitation to um, just be curious about what does your body want to do right now? Like, and, and I've had, you know, clients say it wants to get up and like leave this room. And it's like, okay, then do that. Like get up, open the door, go up, like whatever it is that you need to do to, that you're, and it's also a, you're just, you're letting out um, discharging. That's what I'm looking for. The energy that got stuck perhaps in a circumstance or situation where you couldn't move mm-hmm. um, to give your body that opportunity to, to make that discharge happen. Um, and it can often be quite empowering to just have that sensation of, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it now. It's like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. <laughs> it's like, Oh yeah. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I love that language of, of, I think you said discharging the energy that got stuck in your body the first time. That's really helpful language for me. Thank you. It comes from Peter Levine's work. So I think if anybody's interested, his book, Waking the Tiger is a really helpful tool in terms of just understanding the physiology of what happens when, when we are activated like that and how we need to discharge that. Okay. Let's, let's talk about after the immediate activation has passed. Like how can people find help long-term? Like what sorts of things could a person explore in in order to help them heal the body, actually find healing, not just keep getting activated over and over, but, but really lean, start to lean into some healing. Do you have some direction for us? I think body therapies for me personally have been healing, whether that looks like Reiki, um, getting energy work done, whether that looks like acupuncture, um, or even, um, the ritual space. I know that I was just in a recent conversation a couple of weeks ago on psychedelic chaplaincy and the use of um, psychedelic therapies to support in which research has shown, has shown research has shown that it has helped um, minimize symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, so I think that that could also be an alternative um, because those types of therapies, again, get us outside of um, our maladaptive thinking when it comes to some of the ways that we're interpreting how our trauma shows up to get to a deeper level of awareness and healing. Um, but body therapies have been extremely helpful um, for me in combination with um, talk therapy and somatic experience. Yeah. I totally would agree, Kendra, that we, we need to work with the body. Um, and I think the other things that I would add to that is our therapies, if you're if you have access to therapy, like EMDR, the, the therapies that are actually re um, realigning or, uh, you know, bringing healing to the actual neural networks that get dysregulated in trauma. Um, and again, there's a lot we could say about that. And, uh, and yet I've just seen such tremendous transformation happen when we've done the combination of, of the body work, the brain and the body work together. Um, clients that have done therapy for many, many, many years that have probably offered a great foundation, but hasn't made the shift. But when they actually are able to do the brain body work, um, then they're able to really see some things shift in a way that they haven't before. Well, this has been, I mean, this has just been such a rich conversation and, um, I think so educational, um, I've, I've learned things listening to the two of you. And um, I'm wondering if uh, Jillian, you can bring that blessing that you shared with the two of us last week. Um, This blessing you shared with us from Jan Richardson. I think that would be a great way to close our episode. Thanks, Kendall. I'd be happy to. This is a beautiful blessing. Again, as you mentioned from Jan Richardson, her book, Circle of Grace. So I just want to invite all of you that are listening and Kendall and Kendra as well um, to just receive this as best you can. Um, And I'll just read it to you. This blessing takes one look at you and all it can say is holy. Holy hands, 
holy face, holy feet, holy everything in between, holy even in pain, holy even when weary, in brokenness, holy, in shame, holy still, holy in delight, holy in distress, holy when being born, holy when we lay it down at the hour of our death. So friend, open your eyes, holy eyes, for one moment, see what this blessing sees. This blessing that knows how you have been formed and knit together in wonder and love. Welcome this blessing that folds its hands in prayer when it meets you. Receive this blessing that wants to kneel in reverence before you, you who are temple, sanctuary, home for God in this world. Thank you, Jillian. And thank you to everyone who's listening in to this conversation today. Thank you for being a part of our community. Feel free to join us and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And we hope to see you next week. Thank you all for being present with us throughout this particular episode. It is important since we have been talking about trauma responses in the body to remind ourselves despite what has been coming up, that we are whole. And to repeat back to ourselves often today, I am whole. I'm Kendra Frazier. I'm Jillian Drader. And I'm Kendall Raffis. We are Discovering Wholeness, Healing Trauma, Unearthing Self. Join us in conversation at Discovering Wholeness Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Also at Discovering Wholeness Podcast, you can reach out to each of the hosts and also find out more about our practices. Discovering Wholeness is produced in partnership with Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. If you are in crisis and need help in the United States, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. In Canada, call the Centre for Suicide Prevention at 1-833-456-4566. That's 1-833-456-4566. You can also use the crisis text line from either country by texting the word HOME to 741-741. That's HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 to access a crisis counselor 24 hours a day, seven days a week.